recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 11th, 2012. Tonight I'm here with, um, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say tonight. T- tonight I'm here with Sword Brethren, and we're going to start a series. Uh, I don't know how many um, installments this will be. I, I imagine at least three and maybe four or five, on fascism. And tonight, for the most part, we're going to present an article, and I know Brian has some material to add to it, and I'm sure that I'll have some comments. But we're going to present an article called The Doctrine of Fascism. This, is, um, this document is available on the Internet in at least one place. I, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the website. It, it's a Worldview website or something like that. It's one of those World mainstream Online. websites that uh, that um, try to present every side of every issue. Do you have the name of it, Brian? World Future Fund. World Future Fund, okay. And, and it's not, the, the website seems to be more or less a typical mainstream website. They denounce racism and totalitarianism and 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 everything but Jewish um, pop culture, which they, well, you know, that that's the problem with, with all of these outfits that denounce everything which they consider evil is that they all embrace Jewish pop culture, right? Which is the, the elephant in the living room that's really destroying the world. But the, um, the Doctrine of Fascism by Benito Mussolini in 1932, this, that this article was actually co-written by Giovanni Gentile. It's considered to be the most complete articulation of Mussolini's political views. And I hope to present this document probably over the next two weeks because it's a long document. And then after that, I would probably like to go through Mein Kampf and explain Adolf Hitler's views uh, on economy and, and social life in Germany and contrast it to some of Mussolini's views. And, and we're even going to do a little of that tonight. Now, now, this is the only, that this from World Future Fund, that they claim that this is the only complete official translation that they know of this document on the Internet. Uh, I would say that I will take this translation and post it to the Mein Kampf site after we present it, probably, if not this week, then that probably definitely next week, just to have another copy of it on the Internet. Well, the, the book I have that I may bring stuff in from is called Origins and Doctrine of Fascism by Giovanni Gentile, translated, edited, and annotated by Anthony James Greger. Well, well that's the same gentleman that, that co-wrote this article here, right? Well, I mean, they say he co-wrote it, but for all intents and purposes, I mean, he wrote it at the request of Mussolini and on, at Mussolini's behalf, and there's, I, I found no indication that Mussolini actually wrote and codified his own doctrine, that basically Gentile wrote based on what Mussolini had spoken and what Mussolini had written in other sources and kind of brought it together to say this is what fascism is for Il Duce. This article is copied directly from an official fascist government publication of 1935, Fascism, Doctrine, and Institutions, by, well, maybe by Giovanni Gentile, uh, Gentile, right? And, and it's by Benito Mussolini who gets the, the credit for it, right? Oh, I mean, if was, the leader's the leader, he, he, he's getting the credit for the book. Right. Now, now this, um, what we should probably get right into the doctor, I don't know if you have any introductory material. I really don't. I, I would just like to say that 
I would like to present this document in its entirety so that we can see what Benito Mussolini's fascism is really all about, because even though I, 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 there's a lot of reasons why I didn't like or I don't like Benito Mussolini, actually the man was, a, 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 he, he was presenting a very moral and ethical and healthy and sound political philosophy. And he that that's is what he presented and is what he tried to institute in Italy, as opposed to the the Jewish pop culture that the Jewish capitalism and and both Jewish capitalism and Jewish Bolshevism uh, attempt to impose on on the world and 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 the decadence and the um, corruption that goes along with it. If you want, I could read the introduction to the translation of the book I have. It's about two pages or three pages long. It gives a background on what was going on in Italy at the time, and then it discusses, you know, the, the nature of the translation this author provides. And well, the, well, if you think it's going to add to our understanding of this paper, then be my guest. I mean. One of the better interpreters of the thought of Giovanni Gentile, Augusto del Noce, identified Gentile's Origini el Dottrino del Fascismo, the translation of which is herewith provided as a document of major importance. In Del Noce's judgment, Gentile's short exposition on its origins and doctrine was crucial to understanding fascism's intellectual, emotional, and political substance. Gentile's exposition in the origins was clearly intended for an Italian audience. As a consequence, the historic context behind his account is largely unknown to Anglo-American readers. Figures like Antonio Rosmini, Vincenzo Gioberte, and Ugo Foscolo are totally unfamiliar to an English-speaking readership. There is perhaps a vague familiarity with the name of Giuseppe Mazzini, but few could identify many of the tenets of his thought. Granted, all that knowledge of specific Italian literary, philosophic, and political personages is not essential in order to appreciate Gentile's account of the origins and doctrine of fascism. Gentile's claim is that Italy's involvement in the First World War was characterized by several important factors. First, it was initiated by a directive minority that succeeded in infusing masses with their conviction, and second, it was not fought for the acquisition of material gain. Those claims set the stage for the further exposition. The first contention reflected Gentile's considered judgment concerning complex political events. History, Gentile was convinced, is not made by heroes nor by masses, but by heroes who sense the inarticulate yet powerful impulses that move masses. In the making of history, the masses find a person who succeeds in making explicit their obscure moral sentiments. The moral universe is that of the multitudes, and multitudes are governed and energized by an idea whose precise features reveal themselves to but few, an elite who then proceed to inspire masses to give form and life to history. That interpretation of the dynamics of social change was shared by most of the significant social thinkers of the last quarter of the 19th and the first quarter of the 20th centuries, and Gentile was convinced of the merit of that assessment before there was an organized fascism. He had expressed that characterization in his essays, written for more popular audiences as early as 1918, before the manifest appearance of a fascist movement. The second contention, found in the opening pages of Origine e Dottrina del Fascismo, referred to the common motive that were bound together, that bound together nationalists, revolutionary syndicalists, futurists, and philosophical idealists. 
That motive, while ideal rather than material, was not the defense of France or of the United Kingdom, nor was it to protect democracy against the impostures of the authoritarian Germans and Austrians. The purpose of intervention in the First World War with or against Germany was the redemption of Italy, begun with the Risorgimento, the 19th century effort to unite the Italic Peninsula in a single nation. Entry into the war, Gentile argues, was necessary in order to finally unite the nation through the shedding of blood. Only that could create a true nation, one that would make itself valued and of consequence in the world. The purpose of Italy's intervention in the First World War was to finally participate in the making of history, never again to live, quote, in the shadow of others. For Gentile, the First World War brought into sharp relief the two souls of contemporary Italy, one that sought the continuation of the efforts of the Risorgimento and the other that lapsed back into the behaviors of old Italy, the Italy of empty rhetoric, passivity, egoistic amoralism, velity, and anarchy. The first sought an Italy that was united and integral and was serious, with a seriousness that was religious in character and infused with faith. It was a soul that sought the grandeur of the nation. Gentile identifies that soul with the thought of Giuseppe Mazzini. In his exposition, Gentile seeks to establish a direct continuity between that thought, the Risorgimento, and fascism. It was an effort that was to continue throughout the fascist period and found expression in the notion that the fascist revolution was one that was conservative, preserving the revolutionary elements of Italy's modern political and economic developments of the preceding century in order to construct upon them. The effort was clearly designed to serve several purposes, one of the most important of which was to provide an answer to Benedetto Croce's claim that fascism represented nothing more than a radical discontinuity in Italy's liberal political development. By the time that Gentile wrote The Origins, Croce had assumed an anti-fascist intransigency, and his argument was employed to make of fascism a meaningless parenthesis in the history of the nation. Fascist intellectuals were to argue that fascism drew on living elements of Italy's past and was a perfectly comprehensible consequence of their accelerated revolutionary maturation. Fascist intellectuals argued for continuity, and anti-fascists argued for discontinuity. It is a dispute that remains unresolved to this day. The notion that Italy immediately before and certainly after the First World War was a divided, if not fragmented, nation is not in dispute. That there were two Italys, one of which was Mazzinian and the other anti-Mazzinian, was a common conviction. What is more interesting is the fact that Mussolini himself, apparently under the influence of Gentile, gradually accepted the distinction and ultimately appealed to Mazzinian ideas to support his political positions. The Mazzinian ideas with which fascism came to be infused were Mazzinian only insofar as Mazzini's ideas were interpreted by Gentile. Gentile saw in Mazzinian convictions philosophical idealism, a call to national mission, a consuming morality, a seriousness of purpose, religiosity, anti-individualism, totalitarian unity, an invocation to selfless duty and the centrality of the state, all functional requirements for a nation undergoing late economic and industrial development in the early 20th century, and an international environment dominated by hegemonic plutocracies. None of this is difficult to understand. We have witnessed similar postures, political and social, assumed by revolutionary movements and revolutionary regimes in places as diverse as Eastern Europe, Latin and Caribbean America, the Middle East, Asia, and on occasion in Africa. 
What distinguishes Gentile's thought in some measure is its insistence on liberty and freedom as the critical center of fascist revolutionary thought. Anglo-Americans have long suffered a curious intellectual affliction. They have been prepared to entertain a conviction that Marxist-Leninists, who have supervised some of the most thoroughgoing totalitarian political systems of the 20th century, were nonetheless committed to a host of positive normative convictions, such as equality, democracy, and freedom. They have not been prepared to consider the possibility that fascist intellectuals held some of the very same convictions. Western intellectuals were prepared to argue that Marxist-Leninist intellectuals were betrayed by their leaders in the violation of equality, democracy, and freedom. They were not prepared to consider the same arguments with respect to any fascist commitment to such values. Marxist-Leninist intellectuals were betrayed. Fascist intellectuals were simply liars, frauds, and mountbanks. The truth is that Gentile held freedom and liberty to be the central normative convictions of fascist doctrine. We may argue that such values were betrayed by fascism, and as an aside here, I would say that this is the author's bias speaking through, because I would say that the fascist countries were free in the sense that we understand freedom, but not in the sense of Jewish perversion. Where well, well right. it's definitely the author's bias showing through. Without a doubt, his freedom and liberty are the Jewish ideals of freedom and liberty, mm-hmm. where in, in the Christian ideal, we are beholden to serve our nation and our kin and our freedom of liberty, and liberty come through our ability to do that. And and in other words, Christ tells us to love our brother, and we're only free in Christ, right? Mm. And we're only really free when when, when we're serving our race and, and our God and, and our nation, right? To continue, we may argue that such values were betrayed by fascism, and have we just established they indeed were not, that's his bias, to continue, but we cannot insist that a case for them was not made by fascist intellectuals. Gentile argued that the fascist state was fundamentally democratic and predicated on liberty. For Gentile, the concepts were legitimately contested. For Gentile, only when the individual fully identifies with the community and its expression in the state is true freedom and democracy possible. Like Marxist-Leninist, Gentile held that the individual is unreal, restricted, and unfree, outside the multiple relationships established in community with others. The individuals for Gentile is, in essence, a, com- a communal being, a gemeinwesen. Full freedom and democracy for such a creature finds expression only in identity with the community, in Gentile's case, with the nation and its political expression in the state. However, that identity is achieved, how that identity is achieved is argued in Gentile's technical philosophical works. For the purpose of of the present reading, Gentile provides a non-technical account in the selections herewith provided from his La Reforma del Educazione, where the initial thoughtless freedom of students is reconciled with the true freedom of unity with the authority of informed instruction. The title of that work is The Reform of Education, right? It would help if we got the English version, right? For Anglo-Americans who have limited access to the, to the Italian literature of the fascist period, it is important to appreciate that Mussolini recognized that Gentile provided the normative rationale for fascism and that whatever objections were raised by both fascists and anti-fascists, Gentile's views would ultimately prevail. For Mussolini, Gentile was the philosopher of fascism. Gentile provides an answer to the prevailing folk wisdom of political science that fascism was anti-intellectual, irrational, mindless, and inhumane. Whatever inhumanity, thoughtlessness, and perversity can legitimately be attributed to fascism cannot be 
the consequence of a lack of a reasonably well-articulated and measurably persuasive normative doctrine. In dealing with fascism as a doctrine, one can do no less than traditionally has been done with respect to Marxism-Leninism as a doctrine. One must consider it dispassionately and objectively in terms of the criteria employed to measure the credibility of any body of political thought. And of course, I would say an objective analysis of Marxism there's no way you can conclude anything other than that Marxism is a doctrine intended to destroy civilization by undermining the fabric of society through private property and the family. Marxism is, as um, Der Ewige Jude said, the doctrine of the destruction of nations. Absolutely. Marxism is the doctrine of the institution of Talmudism in, in Gentile countries, right? The provision of a translation of the origins and doctrines of fascism in its entirety and selections from what is fascism and the reform of education are supplied as insights into the doctrine of fascism, the debt of that doctrine to the thought of Giovanni Gentile, and the continuity of doctrine in time prior to the advent of fascism. As has been argued elsewhere, fascism grew out of the despair and humiliation of an Italy that had long been subject to the pretensions of the advanced industrial democracies. It found its intellectual and normative rationale in the thought of Giovanni Gentile. Some liberties have been taken in the translations, and no attempt has been made to preserve Gentile's singular literary style, sometimes Baroque and sometimes synoptic. Rather, it is hoped that the translations are relatively easy to read and understand, and that they faithfully convey something of the substance of Gentile's ideas. Inserts appear within brackets, and annotations appear in the endnotes, with the intention to clarify or augment some matters that arise in the text. Footnotes are present, pre, presented as they appear in the original Italian. Now, now, let me just say as a side note that you're pronouncing um, Giovanni's last name as Gentile, but it is Gentile. And, and huh. it, that, that is a popular Italian name, right? They would uh, pronounce I'm, it Gentile? Yeah, well, well, that's how we would pronounce it. That's how the English would pronounce it. I just want people to get a picture of his name, right? It is a popular Italian name. I have known families that were, were I believe, white Italians that bore the name, right? Hmm. I would have uh, thought I, that in Italy they would have said Gentile. Well, well yes, and, and but I, I just wanted to give people a picture of it because in English it's Gentile, right? Okay. It's actually a Latin word, right? Gentilis means of the race, right? Hmm. That, that's what it means. And that's exactly where the name came from. It, it doesn't, it's not related to the usage of the name of the word as a name in the New Testament. The, the word shouldn't be in the, in the English New Testament at all, right? Now, I'm um, Gentile, or Gentile. He was from a farming village in western Sicily. Okay. Okay. Uh, I know some non-Sicilian Italians that have the name in, in New Jersey. But, but it's, yeah, right, to western Sicily is odds of being... Um, an Arab, but pretty high, right? But he's from a farming village, so it's not like he's a merchant. That would, if he were, you know, a merchant from the capital of Sicily, that would probably be a dead giveaway. Right. And I'm looking at his picture right here too—a picture from his youth, the picture from his official picture on the book. He looks to be genuinely European. Okay. Well, well, let's um, well, let's get on with the, the doctrine of fascism, Benito Mussolini written by Giovanni Gentili. Like all sound political conceptions, fascism is action and it is thought. Action in which doctrine is imminent and doctrine arising from a given system of historical forces in which it is inserted 
and working on them from within. And, and, in other words, Mussolini is trying to portray fascism as basically a grassroots movement, right, right up from the people, and 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 a reflection of their in their own spirits, right? Well, you know, most of the original fascists, you know, they were um, veterans from World War One. They were just normal people. It is therefore a form correlated to contingencies of time and space, but it has also an ideal content which makes it an expression of truth in a higher region of the history of thought. There is no way of exercising a spiritual influence in the world as a human will dominating the will of others unless one has a conception both of the transient and the specific reality on which that action is to be exercised and of the permanent and universal reality in which the transient dwells and has its being. To know men one must know man, and to know man, one must be acquainted with reality and its laws. There can be no conception of the state, which is not fundamentally a conception of life. That now, I'm going to compare um, Mussolini's um, opinion of the, you know, definition of the state with Hitler's a little later on in, in the presentation of this paper just as an aside, right? There can be no conception of the state which is not fundamentally a conception of life, philosophy, or intuition. System of ideas evolving within the framework of logic or concentrated in a vision of, or a faith, but always, at least potentially, an organic conception of the world. Thus, many of the practical expressions of fascism, such as party organization, system of education and discipline can only be understood when considered in relation to its general attitude toward life, a spiritual attitude. Fascism sees in the world not only those superficial, material aspects in which man appears as an individual, this is Marxism, right? Standing by himself, self-centered, subject to natural law, which instinctively urges him toward a life of selfish, momentary pleasure, I should say that they are, they are all the things that Marxism promotes, basically. It sees not only the individual, but the nation and the country. Now, now here we have a serious um, and honest um, correlation to Adolf Hitler's National Socialism, right? Because they had, Adolf Hitler had the same exact ideas, right? That, that the individual was important to, to the nation and the country and should work on the behalf of the nation and the country, and that's a very Christian idea, right? And we have it right here in in, in, um, in Mussolini's Mussolini's fascism. Individuals, it, it sees not only the individual but the nation and the country. Individuals and generations bound together by a moral law, the anathema of the Jew, with common traditions and a mission which suppressing the instinct. For life closed in a brief circle of pleasure builds up a higher life founded on duty, a life free from the limitations of time and space in which the individual, by self-sacrifice, the renunciation of self-interest by death itself can achieve that purely spiritual existence in which his value as a man consists. And I was about to say this is anathema that a Jew, but you said it first, and if a Jew hears this, he's probably going to vomit, isn't he? Well, well, this is why Jews hate fascism. 
That this is that just in these opening paragraphs of this definition, this is why Jews hate fascism. It's also why Jews hate Christianity. Mm. And, it's, and, and, and it's also, once you understand fascism, once you understand, and I can't call Hitler a fascist, right? Once you understand Hitler's national socialism, once you, if you really understood Christianity and you saw the common threads in them, you would understand why today, to this very day, Jews in New York and Jews in Tel Aviv label Christians as Nazis and fascists. They understand the correlations. Christians, yeah, yeah, you know, in the introduction you just read to your book from, from concerning the um, the political philosophy of, of Giovanni Gentili, well, well, in that introduction, it it it, it had explained the the um, well, well the connections to, to morality and fascism and and um, I, I I actually lost my thread right, but that's okay. But but the the Jew understands and 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 the introduction to your book said that Americans were um, basically ignorant of fascism, right? Americans are ignorant of fascism. Americans are ignorant of, of the roots of national socialism, okay? That, that national socialism didn't start with Adolf Hitler, right? We know that nationalism and, and socialism and national socialism as political philosophies in Europe started in the 19th century. They were just overshadowed with Bolshevism, with Marxism, and with all the Jewish-isms, right? Well, well um, uh, Americans are ignorant of, to what fascism is, and that's how the Jews in the Jewish-controlled media are so easily able to slander it and make it look evil. But fascism and Adolf Hitler's national, national socialism are basically very Christian political philosophies. I mean, we see that right here in this first two paragraphs that, that I've read from this paper, that they're very Christian. They're not perfect. Don't get me wrong. They're not perfect political philosophies, but they're very Christian political philosophies. And the Jews if, understand that. If, That's why they hate it. The Jews understand it. That's damn right. The Jews understand it, and that is why they hate it, and that's why they label Christians as Nazis and fascists, because the and Jews know. Because the, the Anglo-American audience really is, and the Jews know what fascism really is. And the Anglo-American audience only sees fascism through a Jewish lens. Absolutely. Uh, only through the Jewish media do we know what the word fascism is, but we don't know. We, as a collective nation, don't know what fascism means. You know, um, George Orwell declared that the word fascism has lost almost all of its meaning and is almost entirely meaningless. He said almost any English person would accept bully as a synonym for fascist, and he said that as early as 1944. Well, well right, and he's absolutely correct, because the Jews have slandered and have refused to explain fascism. They don't want to explain it, and, and I'm talking about back in the 1890s, the 1910s, the 1920s, National Socialism, Mussolini's fascism, they don't want to explain these things because if people had the explanations, they'd be taken out of the dichotomy between communism and capitalism. They would realize that there are other ways. Also, um, J. Edgar Hoover referred to the Chinese Marxists as red fascists. 
and academics, they, they want Fidel Castro and Ho Chi Minh and Stalin referred to as Marxist fascists or Soviet fascists. So anything negative in the world is attributed to fascism. Anything positive is communism or capitalism. Well, well all of these schools of political thought in Europe, which Jewish capitalism ultimately won out over, and, or, or Jewish Bolshevism and communism, depending on which part of Europe you were in, but, right? They're, they're both two arms of the same beast, right? All these schools of political thought in, in Europe that offered a third way, that they, they, they were all drowned out by the Jews in America and, and in Britain and, and by the media and the power of the Jewish media. And the, the average American is absolutely oblivious to them. Or beyond that, instead of being drowned out, they were destroyed. Well, well, yeah, well, they were drowned out so that they could be destroyed, so that they could be branded as evil and, and be destroyed in, in the Second World War. There's no doubt. To continue with Benito Mussolini's def definition of fascism, the conception is therefore a spiritual one arising from the general reaction of the century. It's a reaction, right? Against the materialist, materialistic positivism of the 19th century. Anti-positivistic, but positive. Neither skeptical, neither skeptical nor agnostic, neither pessimistic nor supinely optimistic, as are, generally speaking, the doctrines, all negative, which place the center of life outside of man, like Marxism does, right? Whereas, by the exercise of his free will, man must create his own world. Fascism wants man to be active and to engage in action with all his energies. It wants him to be manfully aware of the difficulties besetting him and ready to face them. It conceives of life as a struggle in which it behooves a man to win for himself a really worthy place. And the Jews have basically taken that, that out of our society, right? Everybody wins now. And actually, in reality, everybody loses, well, right? Just a brief aside about materialism. Conservapedia defines materialism as a philosophy within the realm of metaphysics that holds that the only thing that can be proven beyond doubt to exist is matter. Materialism holds that all phenomena and processes can be explained as manifestations or a result of matter. Materialism ignores unseen opportunity costs, and often materialists are unable or unwilling to grasp this and other abstract truths. Materialists have trouble realizing that the deterrence effect of gun ownership yields more benefit than any harms that guns cause. Materialists often develop obsessions with their outlook as reflected by evolution syndrome. And, of course, you know, this is born out of dialectical materialism put forth by, you know, um, the Hegelians of basically Marx and Engels. And do you want well, to well, get much into Materialism is basically modern-day Sadduceeism, right? Mm -hmm. It's just an offshoot of modern-day Sadduceeism. It, it came out of the it's rabbis. Right, right. The, the, the spiritual world means nothing. Everybody, everything has to be concrete. Life is reduced to a series of economic decisions, and you die, and, and that's and, it. And beyond that, it's not just that the spiritual world is meaningless; it's the spiritual world doesn't even exist. Right. That you know, we're we're just walking, talking animals. We live for sixty or seventy years, make a bunch of business and economic decisions, then we die, and we um, become worm food. That, that's modern-day Phariseeism. Uh, I'm sorry, Sadduceeism and, and materialism and the, the progressivism of, of the, um, you know, liberal progressivism are both offshoots of it, right? Mm 
that both the child, they're they're both step, bastard step, stepchildren of sadiseism, right? And I've noticed that it seems in America today and in the West, atheistic materialism and even nihilism, those seem to be the prevailing philosophies that have won out in the West, where people may be nominally Christian, but they're practicing dialectical materialism or some sort of Marxist materialism or nihilism. Oh, well, well they're, right. They're, they're all from the melting pot of Jewish pop culture because that's what it is, right? Fascism wants man to be active and to engage in action with all his energies. It wants him to be manfully aware of the difficulties besetting him and ready to face them. It conceives of life as a struggle in which it behooves a man to win for himself a really worthy place. First of all, by fitting himself physically, morally, intellectually, to become the implement required for winning it. As for the individual, so for the nation, and so for mankind. Hence the high value of culture in all its forms, artistic, religious, scientific, and the outstanding importance of education. Hence also the essential value of work by which man subjugates nature and creates the human world, economic, political, ethical, and intellectual. Ethical would be the, the, the major um, missing piece of the puzzle for the Jew, right? This positive conception of life is obviously an ethical one. It invests the whole field of reality as well as the human activities which master it. No action is exempt from moral judgment. No activity, this is why the Jews hate fascism, right? No activity can be despoiled of the value which a moral purpose confers on all things. Therefore, life, as conceived of by the fascist, is serious, austere, and religious. All its manifestations are poised in a world sustained by moral forces and subject to spiritual responsibilities. The fascist disdains an easy life, and the Christian should also. This is is diametrically opposed to Jewish materialism. Well, well, absolutely, but but the, the, the Aryan mind even in in Mussolini's Italy, is diametrically opposed to the the Talmudic Jewish mind. I mean, it's pretty plain, and and Adolf Hitler pointed that out all the the time. I think when we see Jewish doctrines, when we read Marx, when we read the Talmud, we're basically, we're gaining insight into the mind of Satan. There's no doubt. It's the destruction of societies, right? and not the building of societies, not the creation of a peaceful, moral world which, in, in which civilization can arise, right? Well, if you read um, the, the fascist idea of revolution is to build upon the past and what worked in the past, and Hitler even said that each new generation seeks to take what the previous generation got right and build upon that foundation while throwing away the, the, the bricks that were bad bricks and, and making, you know, new bricks. He was talking about building a house, and you don't just tear the whole thing down and start over, where he said the Jewish Marxists proposed destroying everything, obliterating all connection to the past and all past traditions, and replacing it with nothing. Except basically emptiness and meaninglessness. The fascist conception of life is a religious one in which man is viewed in his imminent relation to a higher law, the laws of God written in our hearts, endowed with an objective will transcending the individual and raising him to conscious membership 
of a spiritual society. We care for and love each other, and we have respect for each other written in our hearts, and that creates that spiritual society. Those who perceive nothing beyond opportunistic considerations in the religious policy of the fascist regime fail to realize that fascism is not only a system of government, but also, and above all, a system of thought. In the fascist conception of history, man is man only by virtue of the spiritual process to which he contributes as a member of the family, the social group, the nation, and in function of history to which all nations bring their contribution. Hence the great value of tradition in records, in language, in customs, in the rules of social life. Outside history, man is a non-entity. Fascism is therefore opposed to all individualistic abstractions based on 18th century materialism, or, or what we know as Marxism, right? And it is opposed to all Jacobinistic utopias and innovations. Now, now, now the, Jacob, the Jacobins, right, the, the, um, the, the Jewish masons that invaded America after, after they were thrown out of Austria or Bavaria it was, right? It does not believe in the possibility of happiness on earth as conceived by the economistic literature of the 18th century. And it therefore rejects the theological notion that at some future time, the human family will secure a final settlement, settlement of all its difficulties. And, and that would be the propaganda pushed by the Jew, right? This notion runs counter to experience, which teaches that life is in continual flux and in process of evolution. Now, I don't think he's talking about biological evolution, right? In politics, fascism aims at realism. In practice, it desires to deal only with those problems which are the spontaneous product of historic conditions and which find or suggest their own solutions. Only by entering into the process of reality and taking possession of the forces at work within it can man act on man and on nature. Anti-individualistic, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state. I would say that, that uh, Mussolini has a slightly different concept of the state than Hitler did, and I'll get into that later. But um, basically to summarize, if the state wants to exist for the benefit of the, the you know, the... Um the um, race comrades, the, the, the Volk community, and there's some individual who's dedicated towards pushing open borders and advocating all manner of perversion, then he loses his liberty to do that. He loses his liberty to speak because he's speaking for the demise of the state. Well, well without a doubt. And, and that's what um, that, that's the boat that America missed, right? Hmm. That, that, America missed that entire boat. Uh, America we, missed that entire concept. We extended freedom to people whose sole purpose and sole understanding of freedom was that they would use the freedom we give them to destroy our entire society, our entire nation, and then undermine all of the freedoms we had been enjoying. And, and that is the fault of the libertarian mindset, without a doubt. You know, when, no. when we were in power, basically, when conservatism dominated from, say, 1880 to 1930, we extended free speech to the leftists. And now that they dominate all the college campuses, there's no more free speech. They've shut it down. 
Well, well, right, because they wanted to use the benefits they had here in order to subvert the nation. And, and it's the failure of the American experiment to recognize the, the beasts within that would destroy the nation. Mm. That, that's our, that, that is our chief failure. Anti-individualistic, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state. That's the way it should be. But the state it is, Mussolini's difference this, in, in view of the state is still um, striking from Hitler's the way I understand it. Which stands for the conscience and the universal will of man as a historic entity. It is opposed to classical liberalism which arose as a reaction to absolutism and exhausted its historical function when the state became the expression of the conscience and will of the people. That's the situation we had in America. Liberalism denied the state in the name of the individual. Fascism reasserts the rights of the state as expressing the real essence of the individual. And if liberty is to be the attribute of living men and not of abstract dummies invented by individualistic liberalism, then fascism stands for liberty and for the only liberty worth having, the liberty of the state and of the individual within the state. The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. This understood Fascism is totalitarian, and the fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and potentates, or rules over, the whole life of a people. Let, let me, let, let me um, Adolf Hitler on page 93 of Murphy's translation of Mein Kampf, I, I think in these couple of lines, define the state. And, and its purpose very, very eloquently, and, and I love this quote, right? The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends which providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. Therein and therein alone lies the purpose and meaning of a state, and, and that could not have been put better by any man. That, that's the way I see. And the uh, the classical liberals, of whom Immanuel Kant is probably the the centerpiece, the the cornerstone, they really push this utilitarian ideal, whereby, in theory, if you if you go with pure utilitarian ethics, if we kill one person. So we can give his kidney to this guy, his other kidney to this guy, one lung here, one lung there, his heart there, and his liver there. We've just benefited more than one person, so it's, it's justifiable to kill that one person and then benefit six or seven. I mean, that's ultimately where utilitarianism leads to. And it's not, worth, um, it's not for nothing that Kant declared that the ultimate goal of a man's moral behavior is the man himself, and that God is just merely an idea, a social, you know, a social convention. So I'd say that, you know, Kant may have been the 18th century frontrunner to Darwinian evolutionism, saying that man was a moral creature on his own and for his own reasons. Are you um, all that familiar with the works of Kant? Kant basically stands as a an overthrow of the 
at the time, the prevailing Platonic, Socratic, Aristotelian thought. Kant basically, he led the charge to do away with all the classics. Well, well, I'm not completely familiar with his work. No, I've read pieces of it. I've read quotes from him. I mean, if you compare Kant and Plato, it's like night and day. I'm sure. I'm also probably pretty certain that Kant was a Jew, right? Hmm. If he's not, he missed a good opportunity. No individuals or groups, political parties, cultural associations, economic unions, social classes outside the state, and let me say that the, the democracy of Athens, right? The democracy of Athens forbid political parties because a political party is basically a conspiracy against the rest of the nation. And, and people don't understand that. I, I don't know what the hell it was in, in, in American liberalism that allowed political parties, but political parties are conspiracies against the nation. Hmm. Now, now, the Athenians understood that. And, and if you read Thucydides, Thucydides explains that the Athenians banned political parties. The Romans also understood it. And if you read Livy, you'll find in Livy that men were not permitted to meet at other men's homes in private. You could not have a collection of men for, for political reasons meet in private. That was a political party, and every political party is seen as a conspiracy against the rest of the nation. It's real simple. It, it's real simple. It's a, it, it's a lesson as old as time, and we didn't get it. We missed that, too. So if we no. wanted to form a political party and have 30 people meet in our backyard, they would see that as a conspiracy against society. Absolutely. It, it's, if we're, we're, we're forming an organization of people outside of the public eye, outside of the public eye and plotting an agenda, well, that's basically a conspiracy against the rest of the state. Yes, it is. That's the way the Athenians saw it. That's the way the ancient, the ancient Republican Romans saw it, and they knew what they were talking about. They, they did that from experience. They banned parties. Oh, and about Immanuel Kant, it says that he, he knew Hebrew. Why would anybody in 18th century Germany know Hebrew? No individuals or groups, political parties, cultural associations, economic unions, social classes outside the state. Fascism is therefore opposed to socialism, to which unity within the state, which amalgamates classes into a single economic and ethical reality, is unknown, and which sees in history nothing but the class struggle. Fascism and the class struggle is anathema to the health of the nation, there's no doubt. Fascism is likewise opposed to trade unionism as a class weapon. But when brought within the orbit of the state, fascism recognizes the real needs which gave rise to socialism and trade unionism, giving them due weight in the guild or cooperative system in which divergent interests are coordinated and harmonized in the unity of the state. Now, now isn't that very similar to syndicalism? And I think now would be a good time for me to read page 59 of Origins and Doctrine. The socialism to which fascism opposes itself is only one among the many, form, many of the forms of the degeneration of democracy that typify modern political society. It represents only one of the forms against which fascism has opposed itself. 
nor can it be said that socialism in its entirety has been the target of the violence of fascism. It is necessary to distinguish between socialism and socialism, in fact, between idea and idea of the same socialist conception in order to distinguish among them those that are inimical to fascism. It is well known that Sorelian syndicalism, out of which the thought and the political method of fascism emerged, conceived itself the genuine interpretation of Marxist communism. The dynamic conception of history in which force of violence functions as an essential is of unquestioned Marxist origin. Those notions flowed into other currents of contemporary thought that have themselves, via alternative routes, arrived at a vindication of that form of state implacable but absolutely rational, finds historic necessity and very spiritual dynamism through which it realizes itself. So he, Gentile is basically discussing that syndicalism under, under Sorrell, Jorge Sorrell, was the front runner to fascism. Do you know much about Sorrell? Economically, yes, because the um, but because of the way that the society is organized into guilds, and that goes back to the Middle Ages, right? Into guilds or trade unions, if you want to call them trade unions, and, and they would that that's the that's the basis for Mussolini's corporatism. His corporatism is not yet. You know that these Jews today, what well, when corporations and the government collude. They call that fascism, and that's not what fascism was, right? Because Mussolini's corporatism was not the, the modern capitalist corporation, right? It was only the name that he applied to the division of the economic sectors of the nation and, and the control that he envisioned the various sectors of that nation to have over their own areas of the economy, that that's how he he arranged and and he called that corporatism, but it wasn't the the capitalist corporatism that we have today. And when capitalist corporations collude and collude with the government to to institute laws and and regulations, that's not fascism. That that's not that that that's a misnomer, and it's it's the abuse of the term by the Jewish media. Well, they want us to think corporatism means corporations having power and working with the government, but that—that that is not the historical no, no, that's or the, connotation of the word. That—that's the—that—that's um, the inevitable out. That—that's the inevitable outcome of Jewish capitalism, right? That the people holding the capital would have control over the government, right? That's capitalism. That's not fascism, right? And and the Jews are. are taking a cleverly devised advantage over American ignorance of what true fascism is. And that's the way I see that. Grouped according to the... I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. We are just ignorant. It's a people we are absolutely ignorant. It's a damn shame. And, and that's... You could blame in part the public school system for that, but the rest of the, the responsibility lies on the individual who would rather get everything that he knows from CNN and USA Today and Fox News and ABC and NBC and CBS. Therefore, he knows nothing. Well, what was it that a man who reads nothing is better than a man who reads only newspapers? Who said that? 
<laughs> I don't know, but it's probably true. Grouped according to their several interests, individuals form classes. They form trade unions when organized according to their several economic activities. But first and foremost, they form the state, which is no mere matter of numbers, the sums of the individuals forming the majority. Fascism is therefore opposed to that form of democracy which equates a nation to the majority, lowering it to the level of the largest number. But it is the purest form of democracy if the nation be considered as it should from the point of view of quality rather than quantity. As an idea, the mightiest because the most ethical, the most coherent, the truest expressing itself in the people as the conscience and will of the few, if not indeed of one, and ending to express itself in the conscience and the will of the mass, of the whole group ethnically molded by natural and historical conditions into a nation, advancing as one conscience and one will along the self-same line of development and spiritual formation, not a race, not a geographically defined re region, but a people historically perpetuating itself. That now, he, he's already gotten into our idea of race here, what, where he talks in, in the lines before that about a whole group ethnically molded by natural and historical conditions. That is so, a race. Yeah, yeah, that is a race, and I'm not sure why he made that distinction, not a race, but... but 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 a people, I, I can't, you know, from the context, I can't understand what exactly he meant by the word race well, and, and why he differentiated it from people because a whole group ethnically molded by natural and historical conditions, it, it may not be biologically a pure race as we would know it, yet you know, as we would imagine it to be from the moment of creation, but it is... Um, it, it does fit the definition of the word race, right? I think it, what he's it, getting at... Higher race. He's kind of hearkening back to the old Roman Empire where everybody within the empire wasn't of the Latin tribe. They were... It was a, a multi-ethnic and then ultimately a multi-racial empire. And he's, well, he well that's true, that, but... It, right, but at that time, in, in classical Greek writings, right, a race, a genos, is actually a subdivision of a nation or an ethnos, right? It, it really was a different idea back then. So, so I, I, I can't really comprehend why he made that distinction, but that's okay. He does have the racial aspect when he talks about the whole group ethnically molded by natural and historical conditions into a nation. What he's describing as a race, but then he goes on to say it's not a race. Yeah, yeah, right. I can't quite get why, and it might be something lost in the translation, right? It really may be. Insofar as it is embodied in a state, this higher personality becomes a nation. It is not the nation which generates the state that is an antiquated naturalistic concept which afforded a basis for 19th century publicity in favor of national governments. Rather, it is the state which creates the nation. So we see that his idea here was absolutely the opposite of Adolf Hitler's idea. Hmm. Conferring volition and therefore real life on a people made aware of their moral unity. That's exactly the opposite of the definition that I read from page 93 of Mein Kampf. Hmm. 
Well, he's saying that individuals form unions who then ultimately form the state, which forms the nation. So he's saying that the state and the nation are a collection of individuals working together. Is that, is that essentially how you're saying this? I'm sorry, repeat that. He's saying that individuals form organizations such as trade unions, which then organize further to form the state, which forms the nation. Well, 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 well right, but that's not how... Um, he's saying here... Well, what he's saying here is that the state creates the nation. He, he's saying that the state generates the nation. It is not the nation which generates the state. I, I read the nation as the collective group of people, right? And, and the state is the government. And he's basically saying that the state creates the nation. And, and I don't understand why he's saying that, because I don't know how a, a government can exist un, unless it's created by a people. So he's putting the cart before the horse. I think so. I think so. Adolf Hitler... Uh, I'm going to read Hitler's definition of, of a state well, again. This would state, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I was going to say, th th this would suggest that Gentile has a underdeveloped concept of the importance of biological race. Well, well that could be. And, and somebody did me a favor in Adamite and, and pasted the, the footnote into the chat, into, into the chat at Christogenia. Race, and, and this footnote, I, I could have went, went to the footnote, but I really honestly didn't think of it. Race, it is a feeling and not a reality. 95% of feeling, and, and that's from E. Ludwig, talks with Mussolini, London, Allen, and, and I'm not sure if I want to trust that, 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 you know, that footnote, right? But, but that's the, the footnote in the actual paper in the translation, right? Race is a feeling and not a reality. And, and I, would, I, I, I would not understand why Mussolini or Giovanni Gentili would say that. I mean, race is not a feeling. Race is clearly a reality. But when you take the, the average German and, 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 and compare them to the average Kaffir or, or the average um, Hutu or Tutsi or, or Pygmy or anybody in Africa or, or any yellow squat monster in China, that race is definitely a reality. My, my concept of race is without all doubt a reality, right? And, um, and I don't know, I would have to investigate Mussolini's political and, and um, biological thought more often on his philosophy much more closely to to um, determine why he felt the way he did about that. If indeed the footnote is accurate, right? Race, the idea that race is a feeling is is just crazy. Now, now I could see a a, a person with a bastard spirit um, rejecting the the idea of race because I have within my own experience seen people of bastard spirits, especially Jews reject the idea of race. But when, when, when you are of no particular race and, and you understand that you're a, you're a bastard, basically, or, or you're of many mixed origins, well, well then you're, you're naturally going to reject the idea of race because you don't fit into any race. And, and, and that's within the bounds of my own personal experience. Although it's worth noting that in 1938... The Manifesto della Raza, the Manifesto of Race, stripped Jews of Italian citizenship and ejected them from the fascist party 
and also kicked them out of any government or professional university positions they had previously held. But that could just be due to the influence of Germany at that time, couldn't it? Well, I'm going to get back to this, this Hitler's definition of state and, and compare it again to Mussolini's. The, the state is a community. This is Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, page 93. This is the, um, the Murphy translation. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures organized. So it's the organization that those living beings create, right? That's the state, right? for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind. Now, now we see that in our own historical experience, right? The, the, after, after the revolution against the British, the American colonists got together and, and for their own preservation created the federal government, right? And, and that's exactly what Adolf Hitler, that's the process that he's describing here, right? Assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends which providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. That, that's the U.S. Constitution all over. I mean, he's describing that perfectly. It's not, how the, it's not how the United States ended up, but, I mean, the Constitution was a document left for the founders and their posterity, right? I mean, the idea was the same. Liberalism killed America, right? So... so that therein and therein alone lies the purpose and the meaning of the state. So in Adolf Hitler's mind, the, the people create the state. The nation creates the state, okay. and they create that state to protect their own interests and, and to ensure their own security, right? Well, the state but, is a reflection of the people that comprise the geographical boundaries of the nation. So if you have 10 million Kafirs or well, 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 living in I, one area, you're going to have a... Right. When I say nation, I mean the body of people. It doesn't matter what their geographical boundaries are. And, well, I mean, and that's the way Adolf Hitler used the word, right? What I'm saying is you could take 5 million Germans and drop them in the Congo, and they would form a Germany, and you could take 5 million Congolese, you know, well, well, right, absolutely. and drop them in Germany, and they just turn it into the Congo. Yes, they would. And, and, and here again, I'll read Mussolini's definition. Insofar as it is embodied in a state, the higher per- is that... Yeah, yes. Insofar as it is embodied in a state, this higher personality becomes a nation. The state doesn't become a nation. The nation becomes a state. That, that's the point I'm trying to make, right? It is not the nation which generates the state. That is an antiquated naturalistic concept. Uh, okay, so Giovanni is knocking Hitler's idea of a state, right? And I would have to support Hitler's idea of a state as being historically correct and the way that states are actually formed, and the, the natural organic purpose that a state has was well-defined by Adolf Hitler. Well, and, how can a government form without a people to form it? Well, well absolutely. That, that's one right. And, and I, I don't understand Giovanni Gentili's definition of a state. I don't see where he gets off doing this, because a government can't exist without a people, and a government is, is not a tangible entity, and the government can't, can't create a nation, right? I, I mean, it's kind of silly here, right? There could be a and translation it, problem. It, it, could be a transla- it could be a contextual problem that we don't understand the historical context that he's writing this in, what he's actually referring to. We don't have enough background in his thought to understand it, but, but it's kind of hard to understand because it doesn't make any damn sense, right? Hmm. 
it, it, rather it is the state which creates the nation. That doesn't make any damn sense, right? Conferring volition and therefore real life on a people made aware of their moral unity. So, so I like this paper until this point, right? That's my point, right? I like this paper until this point. I got a problem with it right here. I'm going to continue. The right to national independence does not arise from any merely literary and idealistic form of self-consciousness, still less from a more or less passive and unconscious de facto situation, but from an active, self-conscious political will expressing itself in action and ready to prove its rights. It arises, in short, from the existence, at least in fiere, which means being in the process of accomplishment, of a state. Indeed, it is the state which, as the expression of a universal ethical will, creates the right to national independence. Now, I would say it's the state which defends the right to national independence, but that difference go in philosophy goes back to the difference that we have over what came first, the nation or the state, right? I, I mean, do you have any comments on that? I'll continue. Well, I'd like to see the, I mean, the original Italian and have it translated by somebody that I, I trust or put in the work and do it myself. And I'm wondering if, you know, you pointed out that this website is heavily into Jewish pop culture. Do you think they could be trying to throw a wrench into the works and do a disservice? No, I don't think they're that smart, right? I don't think they're smart enough to realize that, right? That if they, would, they could cause a problem by changing a few words around. Well, well it, it could be an honest mistake, or it could be what Gentilly wrote. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'll read, you, you, you have his book, right? But, of course, he's dead, so we can't ask him what exactly did you mean with these words. Right. Well, well, we could know that, that, there's a, that there's a certain disparity here in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in, this, in, in this philosophy, right? It seems that Gentile does not have a biological conception of race, and he does not have a racial conception of the state. Well, well he doesn't have a, 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 an organic conception of the state is what I would call it. But because the state, and the state is an organism of the, a body of people who want to defend their interests. That's why the state is created, right? And the state is always a reflection of the race that created it. It should be, yes. A nation, as e even the early kings in Europe were, were basically elected, right? Well... In the sense that they were, they um, had to show their merit and value on the battlefield. They were elected, you know, through maybe a trial by arms. Well, 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 well they were elected because men loved them when, when, when they showed valor and dignity on the battlefield, and men loved them and, and, and had no problem making them their king, right? And today we're ruled over by weaklings, cowards, and shirkers. That's the parable of the trees of the forest. We covered it a couple of weeks ago. Remember. People who are basically just bankers and money manipulators. A nation is expressed in the state is a living eth ethical entity only insofar as it is progressive. Inactivity is death. Therefore, the state is not only authority which governs and confers legal form and spiritual value on individual wills. Now, now I don't agree with this either, right? Because to me, the state should be designed to defend the spiritual value which the individual wills already have. 
But it is power which makes its will felt and respected beyond its own frontiers, thus affording practical proof of the universal character of the decisions necessary to ensure its development. This implies organization and expansion potential, if not actual. Thus, the state equates itself to the will of man, whose development cannot be checked by obstacles and which, by achieving self-expression, demonstrates its infinity. My, my only... Um, uh, well, what I would like to say here is that even though I disagree with a lot of Gentile's political philosophy concerning the formation of states and their their purpose, and, and my own political philosophy agrees very much with, with Adolf Hitler's, well, well the... Um, the, the fact is, what we're trying to present is that fascism is a very moral and, and, and fairly just political system, which is actually meant to defend the people against the ravages of the Jew. And, well, and most Americans think that we have achieved the pinnacle of freedom, and at no time in the history of the world has man ever been more free than in 2012 America. Well, yeah, we are absolutely free because our young blonde women sit and throw their panties to niggers on a basketball court. That, that, we are absolutely free. That's a wonderful thing. And we're free to give 40% of our earnings, the, um, the sweat of our brow, the fruit of our labor to the government so they can give it to people that just don't feel like working. And, and invade foreign countries to make them like us so that they could throw their panties to niggers too. And we have to subsidize the existence of the bastard state of Israel. So they, they believe that we have achieved the height, the pinnacle of centuries of Western ambition, and that America is the freest nation ever, and we're a, a city on the hill, a shining example. Well, we're a shining example of what not to become. I mean, is there any reason to believe that any country in the world would want to embrace American democracy? It has to be forced on them time and again, doesn't it? Well, well, absolutely, and and um, <laughs> right. No, nobody wants it. No, nobody. It, it's Pop culture is absolutely degenerate, and we've been we we forced it on the world where we didn't force it with the gun barrel. We forced it with the pen. That there's no doubt. And in America, we're, we're under fascism or national socialism or a combination of both. We'd be an infinitely healthier society. Well, well, if Adolf Hitler had won, we'd have heaven on earth, right? But it just wasn't meant for man to do. Yeah, you know, it's meant for God will do it. And. Although he, he wasn't intent on conquering the world or taking over America, so hypothetically, if he won, there could have been an exodus of Jews out of Europe and they all would have come here. Well, well if he'd won, if Americans had really comprehended the utopia that Germany actually was in the 1930s, apart from the Jew, while Americans themselves were starving to death, if they really examined Germany, even if they just watched the Olympic film footage, I mean, it didn't take a whole lot to see it. But the Jew hung that carrot out and 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 um, and got us to destroy a kindred nation, right? Well, you know, in 1940, a Jew said, "Even if we Jews are not bodily with you in the trenches, we are nevertheless morally with you." This is our war, and you are fighting it for us. And that was in Les Nouvelles Littéraires, February 10, 1940. 
And they were really morally with their sisters back in Brooklyn and, and, and the streets of New Jersey mm. and Connecticut, right? Well, he was saying this before America had entered the war. He was talking to the British and the French. Yeah. Well, well, that is true. It was a Jewish war. Absolutely a Jewish war. And two Anglo-Saxon nations destroyed their German-Saxon kindred. There's no doubt. And I would say to an extent, too, they gutted themselves in the process. America lost almost 600,000 men killed, hundreds of thousands wounded or sick with malaria. Britain ended up losing its entire empire within a decade of the end of the war. So really, what did they get? Propagandized. They they destroyed a, a functioning, healthy, white Christian nation, and they gutted themselves in the process. No but I would say, after Britain rose up against Germany, they deserved to lose their whole empire. They deserved to be occupied by Muslims. Absolutely. That, that's um, You reap what you sow, right? That, there's no doubt that we reap what we sow. And then the, the, the American GIs came home and sat around and enjoyed the 50s and sent their daughters off to college to become whores. And, and sleep with niggers and throw their panties to black basketball players. Yes, that, that's the analogy I'm using tonight. The greatest generation gave birth to the flower power generation, didn't they? Okay, let's get to this last paragraph of this section right. of the paper. The fascist state, as a higher and more powerful expression of personality, is a force, but a spiritual one. It sums up all the manifestations of the moral and intellectual life of man. Its functions cannot therefore be limited to those of enforcing order and keeping the peace as the liberal doctrine had it. No, it has to ensure that the people remain moral, right? It is no mere mechanical device for defining the sphere within which the individual may duly exercise his supposed rights. The fascist state is an inwardly accepted standard and rule of conduct, a discipline of the whole person, why the Jews hate fascism. It permeates the will no less than the intellect. It stands for a principle which becomes the central motive of man as a member of civilized society, sinking deep down into his personality. It dwells in the heart of the man of action and of the thinker, of the artist and of the man of science, soul of the soul. Fascism, in short, is not only a lawgiver, and a founder of institutions, but an educator and a promoter of spiritual life. It aims at refashioning not only the forms of life, but their content, man, his character, and his faith. To achieve this purpose, it enforces discipline and uses authority, entering into the soul and ruling with undisputed sway. Therefore, it is chosen as its emblem, the lictor's rods, the symbol of unity, strength, and justice. And we'll save the rest of this paper, and, and we'll commence here next week. And I have some stuff that I'll bring up next week, too, about intellectualism and anti-intellectualism. Because there seems to be, in American culture, this idea that fascists are all anti-intellectuals, which means they despise science, they despise math, they despise philosophy, and they're just brutal thugs who want to walk around with clubs and beat up their opponents. And that just goes hand in hand with the idea that fascist means totalitarian bully. And Americans really don't understand what fascist means. I remember in 2003, 
a history teacher was talking about the election in France, or maybe it was 2002, and she said that the the French people had come close to electing the fascist Jean-Marie Le Pen. And I thought, oh, I, I didn't know Jean-Marie Le Pen was a fascist. I thought he was a conservative anti-immigrant who was, you know, for the idea of France, for the French people. There, there seems well, to be a... In the eyes of the Jew, the fascist is a bully because the fascist government seeks to maintain the morality of the people. Mm-hmm. And, and maintaining the morality of the people is the only way to ensure that all of the people of the nation can retain their true freedom. Mm-hmm. So Now, the Jew wants to destroy the morality of the people so that he could corrupt and subvert the nation. When he's not allowed to do that, then the fascist is a bully, right? So, so to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish mind, in the Jewish mind, the fascist is honestly a bully. Hmm. However, I would say that in the Christian mind, the bully in this case is good. So it's the equivalent of someone comes up to you at lunch and says, "Give me your lunch money, or I'll beat you up." And you say, "No, I'm going to keep my lunch money, and I'll fight you to keep it. You'll have to take it from me by force because I'm not going to surrender it to you." So then they call you a bully. Right. Right. Well, right. Absolutely. It's in the Jewish mind. The fascist is honestly a bully, but the Jewish mind is a corrupt, degenerate, perverted mind. And America has learned all its political ideology from the Jewish mind. That's so the problem. The patriot who wants to maintain his nation for his people, he becomes the imperialist aggressor in the eyes of the Jew who wishes to take over his nation because he won't surrender his nation. No doubt. Okay, let's end this here, and we're going to pick this discussion up again next Saturday. Is that okay with you? Yes, is that that'll be fine. Yes. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, Brian. Thank, Thank you for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is William Fink, org. I will be here next week on Friday with Luke chapter 11. Right. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless you all.